All right, well, good morning. You guys are good. Um, so yeah, as he said, Nathaniel Luchens is my name, or Luch. Um, just as a way of introduction, I believe I have a picture of my family. Yeah, there's my wife and, and my kid. Um, so we, like Justin said, we live in Harrison County. I'm the Young Life Area Director for Harrison County. We've been attending Southridge for a number of years, um, and we attend the uh, campus in Bridgeport regularly. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into the psalm for uh, this morning. Dear Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this morning and that we're here. Lord, I pray that you would speak uh, through your word. I pray that you would use this time. I pray that you would mold us and shape us. Amen. Okay, so where we're going to end up today is uh, Psalm 121, 121. Uh, so if you want to, if you, you want to look that look that up in your Bible or on a smartphone or whatever, that's great. We'll we'll get there eventually. Um, and I also want to tell you that we are. I want to give you the big idea right here at the front end um, because then I'm going to kind of take a meandering way of actually getting to it. So this will make more sense as we get into it. But the big idea in the journey of life. Uh, don't look to the hills for help. Look to the one who made the hills. All right? In the journey of life, don't look to the hills for help. Look to the one who made the hills. And I promise that'll make sense as we get into the psalm. But just kind of take that and, and stick that in your head for now. So I want to be honest, preparing this message has been a little bit of a journey for me um, some of you probably, if you grab your Bibles and open it up, maybe you naturally gravitate towards the Psalms. Um, you know, the, the words are lyrical and beautiful, and maybe to you they jump off the page. Uh, maybe, you know, you love the passion and emotion with which they're written, or the fact that they're, it's been mentioned, but they're written by uh, real people with real struggles. Maybe you just, you grab a hold of that. Um, and I would bet that those of you who really just gravitate towards the Psalms probably also really love music, um, because it's kind of in the same vein. Me, not so much. Um, you know, if, if when I'm in the car, I will take podcasts over Spotify any day. Uh, that's just me. Um, give me words and ideas rather than instruments and emotion. That's, that's where I live. And so when I come to the Psalms, it often feels to me like, like high school English class all over again. And I don't know if for you all, but for me in high school English class, you know, especially when we were studying poetry, it would, I would, everyone would be talking about it and I'd be like, I understand the words, they're in English, but that's as far as it went for me. Um, and in fact, I wanted to kind of illustrate that point. I pulled up a poem from an author whose name I remember um, from English class. I don't have any idea if we would have studied this poem, but it's, uh, it's by Henry David Thoreau and it's a poem called, What's the Railroad to Me? Uh, and it goes like this. What's the railroad to me? I never go to see where it ends. It fills a few hollows and makes banks for the swallows. It sets the sand a-blowing and the blackberries a-growing. And that's it. <laughs> that's the whole thing. <laughs> and... <laughs> Um, I did pick that one out because I kind of chuckled to myself when I read it. But, you know, I, I read it in, in the title, What's the Railroad to Me? You know what the railroad is to me? It's a railroad. Like, it's a device for carrying people or equipment or resources. You know, our state coal 
uh, over large geographical distances. I, I don't know what else it could be. It's, it's a railroad. Um, and furthermore, uh, you know, what's all this about swallows and sand and blackberries? Like, to me, that just, I, I don't understand how that fits. Um, it just, in my natural reading. Um, and so when I come to the Bible, my propensity is probably like everyone else. I want to open it up and read the stuff that I naturally gravitate to, naturally understand and enjoy. You know, I love to open up and read the stories and I love to see, uh, you know, the character arc and see how God interacts with people, whether it's good, bad, or ugly, uh, whatever's going on. I love to read that. I love to learn from that. I love also uh, to read, you know, in the New Testament, the, the beautifully crafted letters from Paul to the ancient churches and, and kind of get into the, the history and the culture and see what's going on there and, and, you know, give me those kind of ideas. And, man, I will go to town on that. But the Psalms are none of those things. The Psalms, and I know we've been talking about this, but they are poetry of a specific type. Timothy Keller reminds us that the Psalms were the divinely inspired hymn book for the public worship of God in ancient Israel. Because the Psalms were not simply read but sung, they penetrated the minds and imaginations of the people as only music can do. So the Psalms, of course, are songs. They're meant to be sung and, of course, they're written in a different language. Um, so when I was given the opportunity to preach on a psalm this summer, I was excited, but also, this might be surprising, I actually told the pastors, hey, why don't you just assign me something? Um, I know that we're trying to hit all the different types of psalms in this series. Why don't you just give me whatever gap we have, and I would love to learn and teach on that. <clears throat> So I've spent a lot of time preparing for this. I'm actually incredibly excited now, um, but I do want to say on the front end, I'm borrowing a lot of information from people that are much wiser than me um, as I share this. So again, psalms are, the psalms are songs, they're music. Music, of course, is a powerful tool. It moves us in ways that mere words don't. Um, it inspires emotion. You know, have you ever seen a movie scene that really moved you that uh, didn't have music laid over top of it. And even someone like me who doesn't love music, man, you put the right acting and the right uh, you know, words and cinematography and then put the right music over top of that, and man, that'll move me to tears. Um, music inspires emotion. It's memorable. You know, a moment of honesty. How many of us in this room would say, I, I kind of struggle with memorizing scripture? Yeah, me? I mean, I do. Um, okay, how many of us would say we struggle with memorizing the words to uh, the songs by our favorite artists, our favorite musicians? It's kind of different. Uh, music is memorable. It teaches us things. As we experience uh, songs over and over, the words sink into our hearts and they actually train us to think in certain ways. Um, and it reminds us of important things. You know, sometimes you hear a song and, and it takes you back to that place whatever that place is, but it just immediately you hear it and you're there. <clears throat> so we're going to look at a song, and specifically, Psalm 121 is what's called a psalm of ascent or a song of ascent, um, which I found out, and I immediately asked, what's that? Because I didn't know. The songs of ascent, as I found out, are a collection of 15 psalms. They're in your Bibles. It's, it's Psalms 120 to 134. And they're sometimes called the pilgrim psalms. 
Now, when you hear the word pilgrim, maybe you think of 1600s in Massachusetts. That's not what this is going for here. The actual definition of that word is a person who journeys to a sacred place for religious reasons. It's about a journey. So why were these psalms called pilgrim songs? Well, we have to look back in Israel's history to find the answer. So as God, through Moses, was setting up, uh, teaching Israel how to be obedient to him in that time and place, uh, if we go to Exodus, we see some things that God said. Here in Exodus 23, God said, Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the fruit, gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year, all your males appear before the Lord God. So three times a year, <clears throat> Israel's men were to travel to the place where God was. Uh, initially, that would have been in the tabernacle and later in the temple uh, to appear before God. Now, when this was instituted, this wouldn't have been the most difficult thing ever. This was instituted you know, in Exodus. So uh, that's when Israel is, is in the wilderness. They're not in the promised land yet. They've left Egypt. They're in the wilderness. God's teaching them how to be obedient there. And so at that point, appear before me three times a year. Okay, three times a year. You get up, you leave your dwelling, your tent, whatever, and you walk towards the tabernacle, the place where God's at. Um, where he chose to physically dwell. That would not have been terribly difficult, but the thing is, once Israel did conquer the promised land, those uh, commands didn't go away. So think about the experience of going on one of these pilgrimages after Israel has conquered the promised land. You would be leaving home for, you know, depending on how far you had to go, up to several weeks, including travel. You may be traveling with a large contingent of family or with other men from your village. And, of course, if you're traveling with a large contingent of family, that's an adventure in itself. Or if you're traveling with just the, you know, if you're a man, you're traveling with just the men from your village or whatever, then think about, like, you would leave your family behind and, you know, there's no FaceTime or texting or email or even a postal service. You're gone. You'd be traveling on foot. Uh, maybe if you lived far away from Jerusalem, you'd, you'd be traveling you know, over 100 miles on foot. That would take a long time. There's not many places to stop. You, know, there certainly was, you, know, you couldn't get a modern you know, hotel room, um, nothing like that. There weren't regular rest stops or, or what we think of today as uh, restaurants. Uh, and you'd have to bring everything with you, you know, everything that you needed for the journey, everything you needed for, you know, if you're going and offering sacrifices, you do have to bring all that with you or bring a bunch of money to make these trips. And on top of all that, there was danger, danger on the roads, because there were bandits that would just lay in wait to go and attack you and steal what you have. So these festivals were a huge sacrifice in terms of time and money and energy, and yet God commanded three of them in a year. Why? I think because we're human and we need concrete reminders of God's 
character, love, and protection, among other things. And what's more concrete than stopping regular life and going on a trip for the purpose of serving God three times a year? So getting more into this idea of a long trip, what gets you through a long trip? For many of us, it's probably music. You may even have you know, a traveling uh, playlist. It was the same for the ancient Israelites. But instead of digital music or even radios, the only music they would have had would have been what they brought with them. So these songs, the songs of ascent, were written to be kind of the road trip playlist of the ancient Israelites on these journeys. And specifically, why were they called Psalms of Ascent? I thought this was kind of cool. Uh, ascent could refer to, uh, it likely refers to one of a couple things, uh, either the physical hills, as you get close to Jerusalem, there's physical hills, so it's like this, oh, we're ascending, you know, we're kind of going up and down. Or the spiritual ascent kind of into God's presence. God chose to physically dwell in the temple and you're ascending into God's presence. Kind of a cool idea. And they were designed to help you stay focused on the purpose of your journey. So, that's a lot uh, to lead up to the psalm. But what types of songs were they singing to keep themselves focused on making yet, while making yet another trip to Jerusalem? Songs like Psalm 121. So we'll turn there now. It goes like this. <clears throat> I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The Lord shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. I messed that up every time I read it. <clears throat> the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So this psalm, if you're looking in your Bible or, or on a device, it, it is commonly titled Help or My Help Comes from the Lord. And sometimes this psalm in particular is called the Traveler's Song. Uh, because it seems to have been written specifically for the purpose of instilling confidence on those journeys to Jerusalem that I was talking about. Why did they need a traveling song? Because the trip to Jerusalem would have been difficult and costly, and they needed help and confidence in the journey. So what did they need to be reminded of? Let's look at this psalm a little bit at a time. So first, let's look at verse 1. It says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? All of us in the journey of life come to a point where we realize we need help. We realize, I can't do this on my own. And so this psalm starts with this great question of, what do you do in that situation? Where do you go when you need help? Uh, you know, perhaps... I, perhaps someone in this room thinks uh, kind of like uh, that it's unchristian to ask for help. Maybe you think kind of like Ben Franklin who would have said, God helps those who help themselves. The first step in receiving God's help is acknowledging reality. And a part of reality is God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who 
First, ask him for help. And the first step, this is so simple. The first step in asking for help, it says in verse one, I lift my eyes. The first step is looking up. And the psalmist, he physically looks up beyond himself, beyond his own resources, and what's he see? I lift my eyes up to the hills. Sees hills. <clears throat> so what are the hills? Are they, and are they an appropriate place to look for help? There's a couple of ideas of things that the hills could have represented. I think this is kind of helpful to think about. The, the hills surrounding Jerusalem, I already kind of mentioned that in the Song of Ascents part. It could be those. Or the Israelites, they, when they conquered the promised land, they, they chased out people that lived there before, uh, hunted them down. And, 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 but in some places, they allowed them to remain there. And those uh, Canaanites, they worshipped false gods on top of hills. All throughout the Old Testament, you see this idea of high places. So is that a good place to look for help, the psalmist asks. Um, where does the psalmist help come from? Does it come from the hills? In verse 2, it continues. He says, specifically, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Verse 2 makes it clear. We need to look beyond the hills. Nature is designed by its creator to invite you to look at God. To look to God. I think the devil says to us, you know, if you're not just going to stand and stare at yourself all day and when you need help, then when you look up, at least look up and get distracted. Just look up and see the hills that are around you. That's, that's good. Just get, get stuck on those. The things that you physically see in front of you. Or maybe for us, that's uh, things like, I don't know, social media or constantly checking sports scores or uh, Checking your email all day and all night so that you can stay on top of work. I think God is saying, don't look to the hills for the answer. Look to the one who made the hills. Let those hills, let those things in our life actually invite us to look beyond them to God. So the big idea again, hopefully drawing it into focus. In the journey of life, don't look to the hills for help. Look to the one who made the hills. And when we do that, what do we need to be reminded of? What do we need to be reminded of when life is hard? Let's continue in the psalm. He says, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. So is the psalm simply saying, hey, when you need help, ask God? Because if so, that's true. And I think potentially, painfully trite. Um, I think the psalm actually offers something far better than a trite encouragement. Uh, first, if we look back in verse 2, it says that God is the maker of everything. So when we look to God for help, we got to remember. You know, when we say, I trust God, we're, we're not saying, oh, we trust some spirit of the air that acts on whims. We're talking about the rock-solid creator of heaven and earth. That's much bigger. And secondly, here we're reminded God promised to look after his people. And he does, and he will. The reality is, though, 
In our times of need, we forget. We forget basic truths. We just look at ourselves. So the first picture here that we need to be reminded of is that God is standing guard. He's watching over you and he's never sleeping. He's never slumbering. He's standing guard. He cares. He's right there with you. Continuing, it says, The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. I thought this was a little confusing at first read, but God is your shade. So what? Uh, I think there's actually a couple of really cool promises here. Shade on your right hand is actually a battle reference. This is kind of cool. Um, in ancient warfare, the, the soldiers would have had their shield or their buckler in their left hand, and they would have had their spear or their sword in their right hand. So when they're in battle, you know, they're, they're pretty well protected over here, but on this side... You know, they're open, they're vulnerable. If they don't get that shield over there, they're vulnerable. And God is saying specifically, he's your shade, he's your protection on your right hand. So that's cool. But furthermore, why shade? Why that word? Uh, if you just think about the Middle East, the sun can be deadly in that part of the world. It can blind you, it can kill you through heat exhaustion. God's saying, I'm your shade, I'm your protection. And then he continues and says, uh, the, the moon by night won't get you either. And I think that's important because, again, as they're making these long journeys, these travels to Jerusalem, it'd be easy to, as you camp out on the side of the road somewhere, just be worried all night. The psalmist is saying, no, just remember, God's with you. You may have to sleep, but he's standing guard. He loves you. He's protecting you. He's there. So to continue and finish out the, the psalm, it says, The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This psalm reaches what I actually think is a troubling conclusion. It sounds really good, but if you think about what it's saying, it seems to be a total promise for complete protection in every situation, in every way, in all places, at all times, forever. Which raises an obvious question. What about the times when God didn't protect his people? You know, God has not protected his people 100% of the time, not when people were martyred. And as that continues in the world today, not when people die of disease or countless other senseless things in the world. So what then is the psalmist saying? I think at times, for one thing, we need to reframe what, uh, what ultimate good is. Ancient church father Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He was said that suffering is a good thing. Suffering is not necessarily counter to God's purposes. It can be part of God's purposes. Um, I think sometimes God allows us to experience suffering because he's going to get the glory in the end. Praise Jesus for that. And I think other times God allows us to experience suffering simply because we live in a broken 
and sinful world. It's just our reality. And furthermore, I think we need to remember Jesus experienced suffering. He went all the way to the cross. We worship the king with a crown of thorns, not a crown of gold. So what should we be reminded of on the topic of suffering? Suffering should drive us to ask for help. Asking for help is the whole point of this psalm. So, when you experience, not if, when you experience trouble on the journey of life, don't look to the hills for help. Those things right around you. Look to the one who made the hills. Okay, so what? I think we've all heard uh, at some point in our lives, you know, God loves us. He, he wants us to trust him. He, he cares for us. He wants to protect us. He wants to lead us through hard times. We've all heard that. Um, but so what? What do we do with that? If this song was, uses the hills as a reminder to the ancient Israelites to focus on God, how do we look up to the hills? And then moreover, how do we look beyond the hills to God? You know, if you're in this room and, and, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, that starts with admitting you need help and surrendering to him. But I think many of us in this room would say that we already have a relationship uh, with Jesus. And if the Israelites used things like Psalm 121 to train their minds to naturally look beyond the hills, I want to give us two intensely practical ideas about how we can train our minds to look beyond the things that are immediately around us and look to God. <clears throat> the first one, and this is so simple, but so crucial, look up. Physically look up. Look up from yourself and that device that disciples us in narcissism. I'm serious. Look up from it. Once in a while. Pastor Matt Chandler says, you've not been saved by grace through faith for navel-gazing morality. Meaning like living your whole life, looking at just yourself and, oh, I did this and I guess that, that's good, so that makes me good with God. Or I did this and that's bad, so I guess God doesn't love me. You know, we've not been saved by grace through faith for navel-gazing morality. We've been saved by grace through faith in order to take the order and light of the gospel into a world of chaos and darkness. The Great Commission, as you go into the world, make disciples. Push back darkness. I think it's, it's no wonder that so many Christians are bored with their faith. They live their whole lives thinking that it's just, oh, I need to look down and look at myself, and I guess I did this, so I'm good, or I didn't do this, and I'm bad. It's so much bigger than that. And if time is our most precious, most non-renewable resource, then why would you ever want to waste it? Look up and put it down. 
Second idea that I have, and this is kind of a huge topic, uh, but develop rhythm and routine in your faith journey. Again, ancient Israel had rhythm and routine. They had these festivals, these pilgrimages. Uh, they had songs like the Songs of Ascent to give them courage and key reminders. What about rhythms and routines for us? I'm not even going to try to really scratch the surface. I'm going to give real quick a few ideas from my own life of rhythms and routines that help me to stay focused, not on myself, not on the things right around me, the hills, so to speak, but on God. And the first, it goes back to what I was just talking about, limiting screen use. I really believe that that's a big deal. Um, it dis- I, just, I believe it disciples us in narcissism. There's lots of great books on the topic. One that I read is called The TechWise Family. Um, there's an idea in it that I'm trying to adopt. And the idea was uh, turn off your phone and other electronics one hour a day. For me, hopefully, that's, that's usually the first hour of the day. One day a week and one week a year. What if you went on vacation and turned your phone off? Might be a different experience. Secondly, have non-negotiables in your life. For instance, spending time in the word and prayer every day. Honestly, I, I try to schedule my entire life around it. Like that has to be the first thing in my day. And so if that means that I got to change my plans for an evening for the next morning, then that's what I do because it's more important than anything else. And why is it to me a non-negotiable? Because like in the Psalm, you know, I need that reminder. I need that each and every day. I'm a human. I forget. We forget. And I'm sure you hear that and think, I already know that's important. (laughs) My question then would be, why is it not a non-negotiable in your life? Uh, third thing, use prayer strategies. Uh, a couple things I've done, I've adopted to keep myself focused. I'm not really going to explain these, but uh, real quick, you know, I've started using some of the same uh, prayers over and over, uh, almost in like a liturgical fashion. Uh, and, and I just use the same prayers over and over because I, want, there's wor- I just want the words to sink into my heart. I want to be shaped by it, so I'm praying it to God every day. Um, And then when I'm praying for others, oftentimes I'm simply praying the scriptures for them. A lot of times I don't know quite what to say, and I I just land on, well, I'm just going to pray the scriptures. And the last one that I'm going to offer, although this is could be a much longer list. Like the ancient Israelites, use the songs of Scripture, the Psalms, to help you stay focused. The Psalms are real and raw. I don't want you guys to walk away from this sermon series and not and think, okay, I understand them, I've got it. No, this is real and raw. This is good, real, rich stuff. Someone like me needs help in understanding that. Maybe you're like that. Um, and if that's the case, then I would say ask someone older and wiser to help you. Read a book. Maybe even just pick one start memorizing it and just see what happens as the words you're just repeating them over and over and over following Jesus is a journey it's an adventure just and just like the ancient Israelites on pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem we are on a long journey in our relationship with God And in any adventure or relationship, of course, there's going to be ups and there's going to be downs. There's going to be joy and there's going to be pain. There's going to be good and bad. 
But remember as you go, in the journey of life, don't look to the hills for help. Look beyond them uh, to the one who made the hills. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your word that invites us to do what we know we need to do. We, we know we need to look to you for help, and yet we forget. We're human, and we just forget. Lord, draw us to yourself. And Lord, may we make those decisions that are gonna lead us to trusting you more and to leaning into you more and to not look into the things around us, but look into you uh, for help in all things. Amen.